Good morning. How are you all doing today? Well, doing good. Well, we always like to start off by welcoming uh, any of you that are here for the first time in our sanctuary or for those of you joining us online, we like to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and we do want to open by saying Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. You know, this morning we're going to be taking a break from Revelation to honor fathers, dads, papas, grandfathers, you know, really all of those who have a fatherly role in the lives of children. We want to honor you and honor that role today. And so we're going to be looking at a famous story from Luke chapter 15. Most of us know this story as the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. But this story might be better titled the parable of the merciful father because this story is actually emphasizing, highlighting the nature of the Father. That's what it's really about. Jesus is in this parable talking about who God is, who God is, how God in heaven is willing to forgive repentant sinners. And really that story in context of today, you know, um, the wonderful opportunity that fatherhood is, is an opportunity to teach your children about who their Father in heaven is. That's the opportunity fatherhood affords us, to be an example of who God in heaven is, who their father in heaven is, by modeling the attributes of God, by modeling who God is, our father in heaven, as we see in his word. You know, fathers and fatherhood and fatherly roles, it's such an important um, thing. It's so important on so many levels because how people see their earthly fathers often colors how they will see God in heaven as God their father. And it's unfortunate that there are some in this world today that have difficulty in their relationship with God because of how their earthly fathers acted or treated them or there or not there or fill in the blank. You know, I read a story about a kid who was told by a family friend, you remind me of your father. And that kid stuck out his tongue in disgust. Tells you a lot, doesn't it? But then there was another kid told the same thing. You remind me of your father. And that kid stuck out his chest proudly. So proud of the comparison, you know. And dads, this morning, I just want to encourage you to to ask yourself a question. You know, if at some point in your life, if someone said to your kid or those that you have a fatherly role in their lives, if someone said to them, you remind me of your father, would you want them to stick out their tongue? or to stick out their chest? Would you want their response to be one of delight or one of disgust? And really the scriptures that we're looking at this morning in Luke 15 are gonna teach us four characteristics of our Father in heaven. Four characteristics of God that set an example for all earthly fathers to follow. All those who have fatherly roles, those father figures, it's an example that we are to follow in order to really be the fathers that God is calling us to be. But I do want to make note because sometimes these holidays, Mother's Day included, are difficult holidays for some people because there's many reasons. For some, it's, well, my father's not with me anymore. For some, it's, it's well, I had a really bad father, <laughs> 
For some, there's disappointments and hurts, but for those today who would be like, you know, I struggle with Father's Day because it brings up bad memories, please, I encourage you today to pay attention to what your Father in Heaven wants you to know about Him, about who He is, because although no earthly father is perfect, our Father in Heaven is perfect, and He always will be. But before we get to the scriptures this morning, we're going to spend time in worship, and I just want to encourage you guys to praise your Father in heaven for who he is, what he's done, how he's blessed you, because he is amazing. He is dependable. He is everything we need, and we just want to praise him for that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you today, God. Lord, we are here today as a church, Lord, celebrating what we call Father's Day, Lord, a a day to to recognize and honor those in our lives, God, who are our dads, who have, whether they're biological fathers or who have acted as fathers, Lord. This includes grandfathers and the whole deal, Lord. But God, in honoring them, this day is really about honoring you because you are the perfect example of what a father should be. And God, even in the face of of maybe letdowns or disappointments with our earthly fathers, God, you are perfect and you never let us down. And so God, we just want to honor the concept of fatherhood by honoring the example you are, Lord, and to learn from the teaching that you gave here in this parable we're going to look at this morning. But God, we want to start this day by praising your name and giving you the honor that you are due. Lord, we love you so much and we're so thankful for the lessons you teach us and the guidance you give us and the dependability that you are, the approachability that you have because, God, we so desperately need you and we're so grateful that you're there for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning. Amen. All right, we are in Luke chapter 15. We're going to be starting in verse 11, but wanted to give you a little bit of background. You know, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, As the story is there in the scriptures, the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. And the people that were tax collectors and sinners, these were people that were considered the bad elements of society. They were the cast off. They were the despised. They were the rejected. And at that time, the Pharisees and scribes, who were the religious leaders, the religious elite of that time, um, these were people who prided themselves on being God our Father's favorites, right? These were the Pharisees and scribes. They complained. Uh, They were complaining about these tax collectors and sinners coming close to Jesus because Jesus was recognized at least by most people as a teacher. Um, For those, you know, some already recognized him as Messiah, but people that didn't necessarily recognize him as Messiah still recognized him as a teacher. And so it was... um, it was not good. It wasn't considered socially acceptable for a teacher to hang out with these types of people in the culture there. And so the Pharisees and scribes were complaining about that. They thought it was wrong for Jesus to receive the tax collectors and sinners into, into fellowship and hanging out with them. It was wrong for Jesus to be with them. And so as they were complaining, Jesus then answers their complaints, their discontent with three parables. And these are the three parables that you'll see in Luke chapter 15. You guys will know them familiar as the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. Um, Sometime back, our worship leader, Elder Ron, did a study on all of these, and I encourage you guys, if you missed that, it's on our YouTube channel, and go look at it, because it was a great um, teaching through all three of these parables, and what what they are getting at, but 
for summary's sake, all of these parables had the same lesson. There was a point behind Jesus teaching these three parables. It really is that God is willing to forgive. It's kind of the ultimate thing. God is willing to forgive. He is willing to go after the lost. He is willing to seek out that which is lost, to bring it back, to receive it back to himself. And so, by the time we get to the story of the lost son in verse 11, um, Jesus has been showing us about who God is, his character. But the parable of the lost son specifically, or the prodigal son, shows us something very interesting, very specifically interesting about our God, God our Father in heaven, and what is important to him. You see, because if you go through the chapter, you'll look at the parable of the lost sheep. That was the first parable. And that's the parable that says, look, there was a hundred sheep. One of them got lost, and the shepherd went out to go find that one sheep. But if you look at it mathematically there, what the shepherd lost was one out of a hundred. So it was a 1% loss in what was his, right? And what we see in that story there is really it was about a loss of possession. The shepherd lost something that belonged to him, the sheep. And the idea in that parable is that we belong to God, right? We belong to God. We are his creation. We are his possession. And when we are lost and when he seeks us out and finds us, great joy, great celebration, right? Then you have the story of the lost coin. And in that parable, there was 10 coins and one of them got lost, so now we see almost a greater loss in that story, a 10% loss, still very important. But what we see in that story is that there was a loss of something valuable, not just a loss of a possession, but loss of something valuable. And so the general idea of there is more than just belonging to God, we are valuable to God. And so when we are lost and he finds us, great joy, great celebration. But then you get to the prodigal son, and in that story, there are two sons, and one of them is lost. That's a 50% loss, an even greater loss than the first two stories. But it's even a loss of greater import because it's not just a loss of a possession. It's not just a loss of something of value. It's a loss of relationship, and that is of greatest value to God, the relationship that he has with us, his children. We are God's children, and as our Father in heaven, the relationship between us and him is of paramount importance to him. And so in this story, we see that it's more than just possessions with value, it's his kids. And when that relationship is damaged, when that relationship is severed, um, it's, it's terrible. It's of great, great concern to him. But when that relationship is restored, wow, what celebration ensues when God's kids are restored then in relationship to him. And so today, what we're gonna see in this parable of the prodigal son is four characteristics of the father, which I believe are four characteristics of God our father, and they're four characteristics that all fathers on earth here are to follow. They're, they're a great model to set for your kids because of the great impact that your fatherhood has on how they will then see God in heaven. And these four things are simply this. One of them, the first one, is that he was willing to let his kids make mistakes. And that may be an unpopular opinion, and we'll deal with that when we get there, okay? <laughs> um, but he was also approachable. He was gentle. And he was impartial. And again, these are four important characteristics for, for all fathers, for all father figures to example for their kids or the kids that they have influence over in their lives, um, really in order to be the godly fathers that they are called to be, to rightly represent God our Father in heaven, to minister the love and the grace and the mercy that their kids need, the grace that their kids need, and then really to create the best opportunity 
to introduce your kids to God, who is their Father in heaven. So join me in verse 11 of Luke 15. We start the story. It says, he also said, a man has two sons, and it's speaking of Jesus who's telling these parables. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have come into me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now that word foolish there, that is the word that is rendered prodigal in some of the more traditional translations. If you have a New King James Version, it will say prodigal living there. Um, Prodigal isn't a term we use a whole lot in our modern language, uh, which I believe is likely why the CSB, which I'm teaching from, um, renders it foolish instead of prodigal because we tend to understand the term foolish better. But the idea, the original word there means wastefully lavish or self-centered living. Foolish, wastefully lavish. It's the idea of being able to expend all of one's resources on a self-indulgent lifestyle. It's being willing to just spend every penny you have just to party and feel good. That's the idea here. And so the younger son in the story we're looking at really is a shining example of wasting your life. That is the example we see in this son. Now, um, This son here in this story was likely a teenager, and I don't say that to be offensive to any teenagers, Um, but I say that because there's no indication that the son is yet married, so he's not leaving to go be with his wife, which would indicate that he's younger, but it would also, we see that he's old enough to demand his inheritance, and so he's not a young, young child, so likely a teenager at this point, but as we'll see, the point of the story and what he does here is that he demands his inheritance before the appropriate time. That was an incredibly huge act of rebellion, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. So again, the picture here of this younger younger son, um, in contrast to the father, is of the rebellious teenage son. That's the picture, okay? So now the cultural detail that adds to the drama, and really would have been a detail that Jesus' listeners would have picked up on, has to do with Jewish inheritance law, okay? And so I'm not going to get, you know, too technical because it'll, it'll bore you to death. So, but um, really to, the, the point is, is in Jewish inheritance law, um, if there was two sons in a family, the eldest son got a double share of the inheritance, and the younger son got, um, uh, didn't get that. And so the eldest son would get twice as much as the youngest son, which I always liked to remind my brother of um, as we were growing up, because I'm the oldest son. So anyways, but, but in this story, you have a family where the eldest son got two-thirds of the inheritance, and the youngest son got one-third of the inheritance. And, but the most important detail of this is that The inheritance was intended to be dispersed upon the death of the father, right? The whole concept of inheritance was my father is dead, now we divvy up what is left behind. By demanding it early, this son is expressing the highest possible degree of dishonor to his father. By saying, give me my inheritance now, is tantamount to saying, dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he's communicating. Give me my inheritance now means, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want you out of my life. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to be a part of this family. I don't want to be a part of this community. Cash me out now. Now remember, culturally, right? Culturally, 
Um, Israel, the Jews, were the nation that were given the Ten Commandments, right? God's Ten Commandments. And one of those commandments was honor your mother and father. And so in the cultural context of, of Israel and, and really the, the people who are hearing the story and, and the story being told about, um, honoring your mother and father was a huge, huge deal, major deal in their culture. And so the idea of cash me out while you're alive, wow, that was really at the top of the list of disgraces. The son couldn't have done much more to be more dishonoring or disrespectful towards his dad. Now, another detail is if and when this did happen at the time in the culture, um, if and when a son was so dishonoring and disrespectful to demand their inheritance early, due to the level of uh, disgrace, there was three things that kind of took place when this would happen. One, the father would make sure that he would take his son out to a public place before the family and the community, and he would smack his son across the face. (laughs) Pow! because the disgrace was so huge. And then that son would be publicly scorned by both the father and the community. And scorned means to be treated with derision, to be treated with dishonor, to be despised. And so that son would then begin to be treated like a pariah amongst all the people in the community, including the family. And then they would actually hold a funeral service for that son because the disgrace of that level was so bad that fathers would be like, you're no son of mine, you're dead to me. And so they would actually hold a funeral for the kid. So what would happen in these instances is the son that would do this would be put out of the family, would be put out of the community, would be considered culturally to be dead and gone. And and even though we don't necessarily see those details here in the story, we do see the concept later that when the son returns, the dad says, my son who is dead is alive again. And so we see the cultural context there. But I want you to notice something in verse 12. Despite the great dishonor, the disrespect, verse 12, it says the father distributed the assets to them. We don't read of any discussion. We don't read of any pushback by the dad. We just see that the father distributed the assets to them. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He was well within his rights to be like, absolutely not. But he did. What we see here is that he let his son make a choice. And although he might have disagreed with it, in this instance, he honored it. And that's really the first characteristic that I believe we see here in this father that is uh, in this story is that he was willing to let his son make mistakes. He was flexible in that regard. He could have said absolutely not, no, no way. I will not permit you to make this decision. I will not allow you to make this decision. But instead he says, okay, here you go. Now, what I'm saying might be an unpopular opinion and I'm not saying that in all cases we just let our kids make bad decisions. But there are times, especially as they're growing up and as they're getting older, there are times where sometimes dads can be a little overbearing and a little controlling. And as they are trying to grow and learn how to make good decisions, we can stifle that by just saying, no, 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 I won't even hear you out, I won't even entertain your options or your thoughts. And so, by willing to allow his son to make mistakes. I'm not saying, fathers, that you compromise your own values. I'm not suggesting that you lower your own personal standards of righteousness and right and wrong. 
but there are times, as I said, specifically as your kids get older, that you need to let them decide what values they're going to live according to. And sometimes those values might grate against your values. But you need to allow them the opportunity to think through and to make those decisions. You need to allow them the the opportunity to, to make their own choices. And sometimes you might not agree with those choices. Now again, I want to be very careful and delicate here because sure, nobody wants their kids to hurt. Right? Nobody wants their kids to, to suffer the consequences of poor choices, which is the very reason why we have the list of lectures, right? We tell our kids, right? Because I want you to learn from all my mistakes so that you don't repeat those same mistakes. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because as I was looking at this story and looking at this father saying, okay, here's your inheritance, I was thinking about God. And I was thinking about how God does this with us. God doesn't force us to love him. God doesn't force us to live according to his will. He doesn't remove our ability to make our own free will choices. He doesn't um, force us to be. He presents us with truth. He teaches us truth. He encourages us to make the right choices. He's absolutely honest with us about the consequences of the choices we're going to make. But God still allows us to choose. He still allows us to choose. And then in that choice, in many instances, he honors our free will, which is hard to fathom because, gosh, we make some dumb choices. We make some bad choices as his kids. Oftentimes, the choice is to flat out disobey. God, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. I'm going to choose the opposite. We saw that with Jonah, right? Jonah didn't run into an invisible wall where God said, absolutely not, I will not allow you to choose the opposite of what I'm telling you to do. No, he honored Jonah's choice and let Jonah go through the consequences of his decisions and, you know, got threw up by a fish onto a beach, It was a hard thing to do, and yes, by allowing, allowing our kids to, to make choices, to learn how to make choices, yes, that means we risk much, and yes, that means some of their choices could, could lead to hurt and regret, but the more, I think, fathers outright deny just outright deny the more rigid and inflexible that we are, specifically in regards to them learning to make their own choices, I think we create greater opportunity to provoke them to wrath. It's interesting, I was looking through the New Testament trying to find out, you know, what does the New Testament say to parents? There's only two verses in the entire New Testament that are direct parenting instruction, only two. There's a lot of indirect parenting instruction, but there's only two verses in the whole New Testament that are direct parenting instruction, and both of them are to fathers. In Colossians 3.21, it says this, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. That word exasperate means to make them feel resentment. And resentment is a bitter indignation at having been treated unfairly. Right? 
Ephesians 6.4 is the second one. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, stir up anger is the word provoke. You might be more familiar with that in more traditional translations of Scripture. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, right? The idea is to provoke them. The idea is to to put the kids in a place where they feel like they're being challenged, and so they're going to challenge back, right? That's the idea of stirring up anger and provoking. It's the idea of a kid going, if you're going to treat me like I can't make any good decisions, then watch me make bad ones then, right? They they challenge back. Now, of course, that's immature, (laughs) Right? That, that's immature thinking. That's wrong thinking. But dads, didn't you and I have our own seasons of immaturity and challenging the authority figures in our lives as we were growing up? We thought we knew everything. Right? We all meet that stage, right? There's, you know, something about the genetics of the teenage years where suddenly your brain's like, I know everything. I am all wise and all knowing. And anybody older than me is just a dumb old fool, right? I mean, it's just kind of like this thing that happens. And, and we, 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 we can, as young people think, we know everything, and, and, and the harder you try and force us to not do the thing we're trying to do, the harder we're going to fight back to do the very thing we're being told not to do. It's a characteristic of our sinful, fallen, rebellious nature, Sure. But it says, fathers, don't provoke them that way. Instead, it says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And that phrase, bring them up, it means to nourish them. It means to feed them. The idea is feed them the training and the instruction of the Lord. Why are you feeding them the training and the instruction of the Lord? Why? So that they could learn how to make godly decisions on their own. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that a father should never say no, that's ridiculous. You have to say no, right? Our, our world would very rapidly fall apart if we did never say no to our kids. I'm not suggesting to be so lax and, 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 and careless to, to neglect supervision or guidance or authority, right? I'm, I'm not saying to just like hands off on that, but the idea is that, is that when the kids become of the age to begin to make their own decisions, when they're, when they're of that age to start exercising independence and independent thought and learning, they, they, they're, they're, they're going through that whole process of through practice, learning how to make good decisions. I think what we see here is, is in this father, Try not to make the decisions for them. Come alongside to them and help them come to a good decision. Help them learn to make those decisions for themselves. And sometimes that might be letting them make the decision that you think is less ideal in the situation. But again, you know, that process of guiding and protecting and being over them, yeah, that never changes. But as we'll see later, in this particular story, as I've experienced personally in my life with my God in heaven, as there have been times where he allowed me to make a really dumb decision, where he didn't come down and strike me down with lightning bolts and chastise me and condemn me to hell and say, you're dead to me, son. Instead, as we'll see later in the story, that this father was the place, the person, the dad that the son knew they could return to. That when they had made some mistakes, when they had made some poor decisions in their process of learning, they knew they could return to their father. They knew they could come back to him and say, Dad, I've messed up. 
Can I come back? And he knew his dad was that way instead of a father that he would need to avoid for the rest of his life out of fear of criticism or condemnation. So in verse 13 through 16, the son, we read in the story, goes on to waste everything he was given, wastes all his inheritance on foolish living. He finds himself with nothing, ending up as a pig feeder, which is a very specific detail because for a Jew, pigs were considered especially filthy and disgusting, unclean animals, and so it was especially dishonoring for this son as a Jewish individual to find himself so broke, so destitute, so without nothing that he's feeding pigs as a job. And then we get to verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. Now, this is the moment that I think all moms and dads are, are praying for when their kids are making poor decisions, right? That is the moment that every prayer is pointed at. Lord, please bring them to their senses. And in verses 17 through 19, we see that as this kid is coming to his senses, we see the second characteristic I want to point out about this father is not only was he willing to let his son make this decision, and it ended up being a mistake, but the father was also approachable. You see these verses, 17 through 19, they're going to tell us a few details about the father. One, we see that the father has hired workers, because the son says, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? That tells us that, that the father was a businessman of some kind, probably successful because he's able to hire employees. And so he's, he's a successful businessman, likely hardworking, probably wealthy because it says there, not only does he have hired workers, but the son says, who have more than enough food. So he's paying his workers enough to have more than enough food, right? His workers are well taken care of. And so he, he has land, obviously, because we're going to see later that there's this house that he's in. He's got workers. He's got a business. Um, but the son must have thought, you know, my portion of the inheritance, even though it's only a third, wow, that's going to be so much. I'm just going to live like a king for the rest of my life. Give it to me now. I know better. So he gets his third. He goes to a distant country. And if you remember earlier, it said he squandered it. That word squandered means scattering money loosely over an area, like scattering seed. Right? Sometimes you may have seen the picture of you know, the person who comes into a lot of money, maybe in a comedy or something, and they don't understand the money, but they're like thinking they're so important now that they're like $100 bills every time. Oh, thanks, ballet, $100 bill. Thanks, waiter, $100 bill, right? They're just like giving the money away lavishly without even thinking about it. That idea here is that he just spread his money over, over a wide area, just blew it all on nothing important. And the money dries up, he's quickly bankrupt, he's humiliated, he's depressed, and so verse 18 he says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. In this time, this difficult time this son finds himself in, having made his decision, having seen his father honor that decision, having gone out and wasted all of it and is now destitute, where do his thoughts go in that difficult time? Back to his dad. They go back to the warm home, I imagine, his hardworking father. 
His thoughts go back to the one who would hear him out, who he believed would hear him out. Because what we don't read in the story is that his dad didn't slap him publicly when he demanded his inheritance. What we don't read is that, that the dad didn't scorn him. We don't read that the dad had a public funeral because you are dead to me, you're dead to this family. He wasn't rigid, unyielding, inflexible, or condemning. And in the time of need, in the son's time of need, his time of regret, his time of recognition that he had chosen radically poorly, what he knew is that he could rely on his dependable dad. He knew he could rely on him. He knew his dad took care of those under his watch. He had watched him take care of his workers probably his whole life. He knew his dad was trustworthy, right? Because his dad, again, likely a successful businessman, had seen him be, be, be successful in all of these things and handle everything that he had. He had watched him, you know, just do what he did his whole life. He thought, I could go back to my dad and, and maybe I could conduct business with him. Now, even though the son's personal guilt may have colored his perception of exactly how his dad would receive him back, right? I, I messed up. So maybe he'll just let me come back as an employee. Not a son, but an employee. Even though he was thinking that, what we don't see here is that the son for a second question on whether or not his dad would hear him out. Whether or not he can approach his dad, whether or not his dad would receive him back in this moment. There's no indication that he thought his dad would refuse him or turn him away or say, you're dead to me, you can't be here, you're just a ghost, right? And maybe the son thought, maybe, just maybe, I could come back and just be one of the workers who, in the care of his dad, were way better off than he was as a pig, pig feeder. Now, it's interesting because you can see the, the, the dialogue, the inner dialogue that the son is having right here, right? He's, he's going through this mental rehearsal, right? How many times have we done that with our dads? How many times do we do that with our father in heaven, right? We done messed up. And we're like, okay, I gotta go talk to him. So you start rehearsing, right? And you're, and you're, and you're going, well, I know this about him, so I wanna say this because I know this is important to him. And you start relying on the character of the person you're gonna go talk to as you're rehearsing your thoughts. But this son, it, it, we see that he, he knew what to expect from his dad. He was comfortable approaching his dad. And, and, and dad's, God is that way with us. God is that way with you. The example then is we should always be that way with the, the kids in our lives, our own biological children or the kids that we have fatherly roles with, that, that we should be approachable, that they should be comfortable approaching us, especially when they've done messed up, when they've done something bad, made a poor choice. Sadly, though, there are times when that's not what they expect, right? Right? They, they don't expect that godly example. Instead, what they expect, well, you know, there's six lectures my dad always gives me, so he's probably going to pick number three this time because I've heard it a thousand times. And he's going to give me lecture number three, and, and he's going to be angry, and there's going to be a coldness and a separation, and, you know. And so they expect that. And so they don't approach. They don't come back. They don't think they could come back. And those expectations are what keeps them away instead of what they really need is to know that they can come, they can approach, they can come back. And so do you, really, do you want your kids to know that God in heaven, their Father in heaven is someone that they could approach and come to any time after any mistake? Do you want your kids to know that? 
Hopefully the answer is yes, absolutely. Wouldn't you love to know that your kids are absolutely confident that they could boldly enter into the throne room of God at any time to receive the grace they need in any circumstance? Absolutely. To be able to ask, seek, and knock. To know that they could repent of their sin and come back and be received and forgiven by a loving Father in heaven. Well, to teach them that approachability, they have to learn that they can approach their Father from you. They need to learn that from you. You know, there are many who say a child's first impression of what God is typically like will come from what they see in their father. And that makes sense, right? Jesus taught us to pray this way, our what? Father in heaven, right? So the very concept, the very word then builds in all kinds of associations. But it's also why many struggle with their concept of trusting God as their father. Because their earthly fathers have in many ways, whether it been a letdown or, or, or been a place of hurt or coldness or detachment. And so they think, well, if God is a father, he's going to be the same way. And it can be hard for someone to believe that God is approachable, like a father should be if their father was never approachable, especially in times when they messed up. And so the encouragement is, is be approachable. Yeah, you're still going to be corrective. You're still going to be teach, uh, teaching. You're still going to be encouraging. But you need to be approachable because our God is approachable. And so the idea is, is, is you know, for some dads, and these are just, you know, things I've seen and observed over the years in different circumstances, just the encouragement, avoid letting bad days or, you know, job stresses or economic stresses or irritabilities of life, uh, avoid letting those things cut off access to you. Avoid letting those things create a wall between you and your kids, and your kids are like, oh no, I can't approach dad with my concern, with my, with my struggle, because the time will come where they need to be able to approach you. And they need to know that they can approach their father, even if they've messed up big time. And this leads to the next characteristic I see here in the story, is that when they do approach, be gentle. Be gentle. Look at verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, okay, I've rehearsed this, right? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told the servants. Notice he didn't even let the son get through his spiel. Father told the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. I imagine the Pharisees listening to this story probably like fell over at this point. (laughs) What? Are you kidding me? I mean, the way this father acts in this story is, is, is incredibly wrong from their perspective, right? This son is to be considered dead forever and cut off. When this son tries to approach, you don't even make eye contact. You ignore them because they're dead. That's what was expected. And here's the son who visited this great disrespect toward his father with the audacity to come back and and, and expect to be received back. And again, typically, 
in a situation like this, culturally, if a son did do this thing and then come crawling back to dad, um, a few things would happen. One, there would be much public scorn, right? The whole community would rally together. How dare you come back? How dare you? After what you did, oh my gosh. Just treat him with this with scorn, right? But then the, the, the child would be required to bow before their father and kiss their father's feet. That was a requirement. And then that child would then have to work, be required to work as an employee for a time, as a, as a slave in the household. And then the community would evaluate over time. Maybe then, maybe, just maybe, they might be able to earn their place back into the family, back into the community, which is probably why that was the son's plan, right? Okay, I'm going to ask my dad to take me back as a worker and just let me earn my way back in. But in the typical um, cultural scenarios here, there was no grace. There was no compassion. There was no love. There was no mercy. But here we read it, it says the father was filled with compassion. That word compassion there means that he felt the strongest emotions in his guts, right? You ever been so overcome with emotion, your stomach hurts a little bit, right? And it could be a good thing or a bad thing, but this is what the father felt. He was so overcome with emotion, his guts hurt. And we see no hesitation by the father, no stern looks, no inquisition, no sit him down at a desk with the one spotlight on him as dad stands in the dark corner and starts to ask him 50 questions about this or that. We don't see any of that. No, I told you so. No, you should have listened to me. No, how dare you? Just compassion. Compassion. A couple details here I think are very interesting. In verse 20, it said, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. This tells us that the father was on the porch, looking for him. Waiting for him to come back from that bad decision. Keeping the door open, keeping the lights on. Looking for his son, longing for his return home. And that phrase there when it says still a long way off, that possibly indicates that he saw the son like before he entered into the, the boundaries of the town proper, right? That, that as he saw his son before he could get to the community, before he started to endure the derision and the scorn and the dirty looks and the how dare you and oh, look who's back and all that, before that could even happen, the father ran. Ran to meet his son. He was gentle. He was gentle. The running itself was a very undignified thing for a grown man to do in those days. So again, Pharisees are like, he, he did what? He ran. That doesn't happen, but we see there it says when the dad got to him, there was no speeches, no lectures, just hugs and kisses. Hugs and kisses. And the application can be hard. It could be a difficult application, but, but you might not be fully approving of what your son or daughter might be doing right now. They might be making decisions and you're like, oh, that's, just, that's terrible, I can't stand that. And it might be an incredibly difficult time. And guess what, that's, that's fair. That's, that's right, you're, you're not wrong in going, you shouldn't be doing it. You're not wrong, you're a parent, right? You, you've gotta be guiding and directing. You have a place to voice that. You have absolutely every right to voice that, but, but in spite of the fact that they're choosing something wrong, despite of the fact that you're like, oh, I just, stop! They're still your kid. They're still your kid. They are still your child. 
and you as their father. You are one of the very few, if not the only person that has a key to their heart. A key to their heart. And when they come back in any capacity, you don't want to waste that moment. You don't want that moment to be a thing that crushes them further and drives them away again. Instead, you want to be gentle in that moment. There will be time to have conversations and evaluate and debrief, and there will be times for that. But in being approachable, you've got to be gentle when they show up because our God is gentle. There's never been a single time where I came back to my Father in heaven and said, God, I have messed up, I have done something wrong, and he just smacked me across the face. <laughs> You're not my son, get out of here. That hasn't happened. Every time he receives me with gentleness. And yeah, instruction will come and correction will come, but it's always through that loving compassion. Lastly, we see that the father was impartial because remember, there's two sons in this story, right? Verse 25, now his older son was out in the field and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he, was, because he has him back safe and sound. And the fattened calf was like, you know, the one saved for the special occasion, right? Some of you might have, you know, that bottle of wine, right? I'm saving that for a special occasion, right? So that's what the fatted calf was, okay? Um, your brother is here, he told him. Your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, did you notice that? He didn't say my brother. The son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him? Verse 31, son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older son who never disrespected his father, never dishonored his father in this way, the one who didn't leave, he didn't waste in his, his inheritance that, that his father gave him, he's upset. He's upset. Dad, you're showing mercy to this other son of yours. You're showing mercy to him. And so he is accusing the father of, of playing favorites, treating one kid differently than the other. In verse 28, it says that when the, when the son was complaining, it says the father came out from the party to plead with him. That word plead means to encourage or console, right? To encourage or console. The idea here is that the father came out to his older son in a similar way that he ran out to the younger son to encourage and console you're welcome here. I love you. You're my son. Verse 31, he tells him, son, you're always with me and all I have is yours. I mean, come on, remember, you got two-thirds. <laughs> you got your inheritance. I divided it. You, you, you have it. It's yours. He says, you're always with me. I'm with you. But he says, we had to celebrate and rejoice. Why? Because your brother, whom I love as much as I love you, is home. The idea here as he's talking to this older son, is I love you both equally. I love you both the same. There's no favoritism here. You're both my sons. 
You are both my kids who I desperately care about. And this father wants them both to know that he loves them both, that they're both special, that they're both accepted, that they're both important. And, and, and dads, yeah, this is important on earth too. If you have more than one kid, it's important that, that there's no partiality there. Of course, I told my brother growing up I was the favorite. I was like, duh. My parents never treated us that way. They treated us equally. They loved us both. They showered love on both of us. And, and this is the picture that we see here. But the older son is going to go on. He pulls up all these comparisons. You never did that for me, but you're doing it for him. You never did, you know, I never got a goat. I never got the fatted calf. And the dad is essentially saying, you never asked. <laughs> all you had to do was ask, and I would have slaughtered the fatted calf for you and your friends. But you didn't ask. And so we see just as, as the younger son was like, I know my dad's characteristics, I can know I can come back to him. We see in the older son, he's completely misunderstood who his father is. But dad is saying, I love you both. Even though the older son is making these comparisons, the father doesn't do that, right? The father doesn't say, well, maybe if you were more like your brother. None of that. You're always with me. All I have is yours. I love you the same. I love you the same. And so, this father we're looking at today, he was merciful, he was loving, patiently flexible, approachable, gentle, impartial. In this story, he was the father these sons needed. In this world, this is an example of fathers, sons, and daughters need. It's a picture of who our father in heaven is, who we so desperately need, every single one of us. And the story was all to show these Pharisees and the crowds listening what God in heaven is like, who he is. And the great call that we celebrate today, the great responsibility, the great opportunity that every dad here on earth has, every father and father figure and grandfather and all who are serving and acting in that fatherly role, the great opportunity we have is the same. The same as what Jesus was doing with the story, to show the kids in our lives what their Father in heaven is like through how we father them. And it's by being just like our Father in heaven. One who lets us make choices. Even if sometimes they're mistakes, that we would learn from those choices. Yeah, there are things sometimes he just flat out says no to, but there are many cases where he let us makes, lets us make a choice that we would learn from that without condemning us, without lecturing us, without holding us at arm's length, but instead always nurturing and always teaching and training and encouraging and comforting. Our God in heaven who is approachable even when we've made those mistakes, receiving us back when there is repentance because he is so full of grace and mercy. Our Father in heaven who is gentle and impartial and wants nothing more than the relationship between you and him to be whole and healthy all the time. Dads, your desire to keep your relationship with your kids intact, to keep the doors open and the lights on, that will teach them about who God in heaven is, who God their Father is. And that is a lesson they will need throughout their entire life. 
the lesson of knowing um, who God is. Not just in coming to know him as, as, as God, their Lord and Savior, that initial moment, but in walking with him without condemnation every single day of their lives as they learn to live the way God is calling them to live. So be the good model. Be the good example that they need to see. You can't do it perfectly. You definitely can't do it on your own. And so call to your Father in heaven at all times and say, God, help me, empower me, teach me to be the dad that you, you are to me, to my kids, so that they would then know you properly. Amen? Father, we thank you. We love you. We trust you. We know that you have the best for us in mind at all times. In all times, God. Lord, we honor you. Sometimes, God, we dishonor you. Sometimes we disrespect you. Sometimes we disobey you. And God, in your infinite wisdom, there are times when you let us make dumb decisions. And yet they're decisions we learn from. They're decisions that often land us in a place where we say, I have messed up big time and I need to come back to my dad because he's perfect. And Lord, we're able to do that because we know you're approachable. We know you're gentle with us when we do. And we know you're impartial, God. You don't treat any one of your kids any different than any other of your kids, God. And Lord, it's just such a great example, Lord, you set for us. And I pray, God, for the dads here today, Lord, as we are gathered in your church to study your word and to honor fatherhood, Lord. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would fall mightily upon every father, every father figure, Lord, here in this church watching online. God, that your spirit would just fill them with who you are, your heart, your will, your way. That God, their example of fatherhood to the kids in their lives, God, would, would represent you rightly. And God, I pray, Lord, that as they cling to you in that, as they desperately depend on you for the, for the, for the filling to be everything you've called them to be, God, they would just see your glory shine through them. Lord, in those moments where they, as fathers, maybe drop the ball, maybe mess up, God, I pray, Lord, that they would sense the approachability they have with you, the gentleness from you, the impartiality from you, God, that they could come to you and say, Father in heaven, I've messed up. And that as they experience the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness from you, they would then learn how to just do that with their children. God, we do live in a world today where the very concept of fatherhood is, is, is under attack as the family is. And God, this world needs godly dads. There are so many here today, Lord, and we thank you for them. Continue to bless them and work in them and to teach them that they would then do the same thing with their kids. All that you would be glorified, Lord that our kids would come to know you in their own personal life and their own personal independent decision-making to decide to know you and to live for you and to learn what all that means, God. But Lord, the example of who you are would be set in the very beginning by the dads you have raised up here in our fellowship, Lord. We're so thankful. 
God, I ask that you would bless the dads, the fathers, the father figures, Lord, today and every day, Lord. We thank you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, dads, fathers, papas, grandpas, all of the above, God bless you. Have a wonderful Father's Day.